Okay, so we're carrying on this morning in the Gospel of Mark. We've had a couple of weeks break um, from this, but we're going to jump back in kind of where we left off. But let's just bow our hearts and just give this to the Lord, shall we? Father, we do ask for your blessing now as we study your word together. Uh, and Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. Father, your word is living and powerful. Lord, these aren't just dead words that don't help us. Lord, these words cut to the very core of our being. Lord, they expose that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, give us a heart that is ready to receive the things that you have for us today. And Lord, may we take hold of them and learn them and grow in them. Lord, we just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's have a bit of a recap because we've had a couple of weeks away. So we've seen Jesus go through this process with his disciples, of bringing them to the point through the miracles that he's been performing and everything that's been going on, of asking the question, who do you say I am? And they answer the question, Peter answers the question, you are the Christ. And there's a lot they don't understand at this stage. They're still very confused about this idea that Jesus is saying that he's now going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die and, and so on. But that much they have understood, that this before them is the Messiah. And it's a, a, a life-changing moment when you come to that realization of who Jesus is. And a few weeks ago when we were looking at this, we said it is the most important question that any human being can ever answer. Who do you say Jesus is? You know, that is the question. And once we've got that one sorted, then everything else from there starts to fall into place. But unless you know who Jesus is, then you're in darkness. But they've come to this place, and then shortly after that, um, Jesus said to them um, that some of those that were standing among them wouldn't taste death, and death until they'd seen a glimpse of the kingdom, effectively. And so we then see this trip from Caesarea Philippi, where that question was asked. They traveled Jesus uh, and his disciples, and the three disciples, James, uh, Peter, and John, they got to the top of uh, Mount Hermon. Up there in northern Israel, uh, and that's when Jesus is transfigured. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that for, in a moment, just as a recap. Um, and then from there, they come back down to the area of Galilee, and then they make their way down finally to Jerusalem. So we're kind of in this descent now, um, in terms of geographically coming down uh, Israel, uh, and then we're going to go up the hill towards Jerusalem, and then finally to Calvary. Um, the first part of the, the Gospel of Mark has all been Mark, again, just recounting the things he's heard from Peter about Jesus' life and work and ministry. Now we're going to start to get into the most important week in human history, which we sometimes refer to as Passion Week. Uh, it's the last week that Jesus spent with his disciples leading up to the crucifixion and then the resurrection. And Mark will give us a lot of useful information that we don't have in the other Gospels that help us to piece the details of this week together. And so we'll look at those things as we go through. But before we move on, I just want to just comment a little bit more about the transfiguration. Warren Wearsby said this. He said, if we're not careful, we think of the transfiguration as just a bright light shine on Jesus. But this wasn't a light coming on Jesus from the outside. The word transfigured describes a change on the outside that comes from the inside. It is the opposite of masquerade, which is an outward change that does not come 
from within. The word actually that's used here is metamorphosized. And Jesus was literally changed from the inside out. Um, I want to just show you this. Um, and it will be in the notes, you can study it and look at it. This is actually from Oswald Chambers' book, The Psychology of Redemption, and it sounds a very grand title. Um, but it kind of shows you how important the transfiguration is in the scheme of things. It's one of those kind of events that often we kind of read about, we put it put to one side. But you see it in this context and you realize this really was a major moment. On one side you have Jesus as the Son of God. That's as he came to this earth. And we obviously have his birth, the boyhood, the baptism, and all those kind of things that we've got recorded. We then have his temptation, and of course Jesus resists temptation. Jesus is without sin. And we get to that place of the transfiguration where, in essence, he's completed that which God gave him to do in one sense. And that is to prove that a man a human could be obedient to God. Now, as also Chambers actually comments, from God's perspective, really there are only two men. We have Adam and we have Jesus. Adam is representative of the human race and so is Jesus in two different respects. Adam, of course, messed it up. Adam didn't turn his innocence into obedience. He disobeyed and because of that sin entered the world. But Jesus, on the other hand, showed that it is possible to live and to be obedient to God. And so we get to that place where literally Jesus is so full of God that it just shines through the natural and and then really just transforms that natural into something of the divine. Now, Jesus didn't just settle for that. He could have gone home to heaven. He could have just ascended to heaven from that point. But he doesn't. We're going to see as we look in the study this morning that Jesus comes down to this demon-possessed valley below. He comes back for us. And then we see, of course, Gethsemane, the cross, the resurrection, ascension, the glorification. And so Jesus can also be called the Son of Man. Uh, So you start to see quite how, how pivotal this is. I just want to read to you just from this book because this just really struck me. Oswald Chambers says, God created man, a splendid moral being, fitted to rule the earth and the air and the sea, but he was not to rule himself. God was to be his master. A man was to turn his natural life into spiritual life by obedience. Had Adam done so, the members of the human race would have gone on developing until they were transfigured into the very presence of God. There would have been no death. Death to us has become natural, but the Bible reveals it to be abnormal. Adam refused to turn the natural into the spiritual. He took dominion over himself and thereby became the introducer of the hereditary of sin into the human race and instantly lost his control over the earth, the air, and the sea. The entrance of sin means that the connection with God has gone And the disposition of self-realization, that's my right to myself, has come in its place. And he asks the question, he says, did God then create sin? He says, no, sin is not a creation. Sin is the outcome of a relationship which God never ordained. A relationship set up between the man God created and the being God created who became the devil. God did not create sin but he holds himself responsible for the possibility of sin and the proof that he does so is in the cross 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was quite powerful. So the transfiguration is such an, an important event. But you see, you read in Romans 12 too, that this is to be where we're heading. It's turning the natural into the spiritual. Romans 12, 2, a verse I'm sure you're familiar with. We're told there, Paul says, that we are not to be conformed to this word, but be you transformed. That's the same word again, that metamorphosized uh, in the Greek. By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, the idea is that we are transformed from the inside out. This is really important for us as Christians because it's not that we try and do good stuff. It's not that we try and, from an outward perspective, just do the right things. It's that we're actually transformed from the inside so that our desires are changed. The whole inner man is renewed. And this, of course, is done through the Word of God and through His indwelling Spirit in us. And when that happens, that change is real. It's not something that's superficial. It's something that's real. It's tangible because it's a work that God has done on the inside of us. And this, for all of us, is where we should be aiming. This is, this is the goal, in a sense, that we allow God to be back in control of our lives where originally he should have always been, as we read there from Oswald, uh, with Adam was intention, that God is seated on the throne of our hearts and that our inner man, the, the real person, is transformed so that what comes out is of God. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's what the work of the Spirit is doing in us. Now, Interestingly, Mark 7 verse 9, it says that there was a cloud that overshadowed them. This is on this Mount of Transfiguration. Now this cloud is not any ordinary cloud. This is the Shekinah glory of God. We see it all through scripture. It was the pillar of cloud that stood by Israel in the wilderness. It was the cloud of glory that God spoke to Israel from. It was the cloud of glory that God met with Moses and others that we see recorded in Exodus and Numbers and so on. They went and they met with God in this place. And it was also the cloud that stood by the door of the tabernacle. It was from this cloud that God appeared to the high priest in the holy place inside the veil. It was from this cloud that God appeared to Solomon when the temple was finally dedicated and filled the temple so much so that the priest couldn't continue to minister. They had to stop. They were just overwhelmed. This is the presence of God himself. It was the, the cloud of Ezekiel's vision, again filling the temple of God with the brightness of his glory. It was the cloud of glory that overshadowed Mary when she conceived Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the cloud of glory that received Jesus into heaven at his ascension. And it's the cloud that will display the glory of Jesus Christ when he returns in triumph to this earth. There are a number of other examples we could cite as well, but you get an idea that this is speaking of the very presence of God. And I don't know about you, but naturally it's that kind of like, that must have been amazing to see the, this, this cloud, to see, in a sense, the, the physical manifestation of God's presence. And it must have been amazing to be in any of those situations and see that with your own eyes. Well, 
I've got some news for you, because we've got something better than that. Because in 2 Corinthians, verse 4, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, it says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure. What treasure? The glory, the presence of God. It's the same verse that Sarah was speaking about earlier, being changed from glory into glory. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. In these bodies, God has placed his Holy Spirit. The very presence of God himself is within us. If you're a believer, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the presence of God is within you. It says that the excellency of the power of God uh, the maybe sorry, uh, the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You see, all of this is of God. It's the work that God does. You know, it must have been amazing to see that cloud, but you and I have something better because effectively that cloud is indwelling us through the person of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God himself, working to change us from the inside out, that we should all be effectively, as it were, transfigured. There should be a glow about us as Christians. You know, the world should look at us and see that we're different. Oh no, you might not like it, because the light makes manifest, doesn't it? Light exposes darkness, and the world won't like that. But nevertheless, that's what should be going on in our life. I thought it might be helpful just to review those things. So, let's pick up now, and we're just going to have a quick run-in to where we left off in Mark chapter 9. So, Jesus has come down now from the Mount of Transfiguration. And we're just going to pick it up in verse 14. It says, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. So Jesus walks up. The scribes are picking on the disciples. Jesus is not there, and so the scribes, no doubt, looking to find fault, as they try to do on many occasions. And we read, straight away, all the people, when they beheld him, and they see Jesus, were greatly amazed. And Mark doesn't give us everything. Why were they greatly amazed? They just look and see Jesus and they're amazed. Well, I'm guessing it's because there's still something of this glow about him as they're looking. As they're running to him, saluted him. And when Jesus gets there, notice what we read in verse 16. And this is where we left off last time. That, and he asked the scribes, what question are you with them? What were you asking them? And no doubt the scribes were very, very quiet. At that moment. You see, Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Sheep are strange creatures. Sheep need to be tended for and looked after and cared for. They're one of the few animals that we have that God has created that struggle to look after themselves. Jesus, that great shepherd, caring for his sheep. And here he sees the scribes challenging them. No doubt trying to make them lose heart. No doubt their questions were of the intention to try and make them doubt their their trust in Jesus. Yeah, that's often what the world will do. Yeah, it's what spiritual warfare is all about. It's every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Everything that would challenge your understanding about Jesus everything that would come in the way of. And this is clearly what their intention is. 
You see, the scribes we've seen already, they sought to criticize and condemn the disciples. They wanted them to just walk away from Jesus. They tried to discredit what he was doing. And interestingly, the issue is always one of authority. And that seems to be what's going on behind the scenes here. It's interesting that um, I came across an email from, from some years ago. I was just doing a little bit of uh, tidying up on my computer. And it was uh, not long after I started the, the ministry we had for three years or so down in Portland, Dorset. And I'd had an email from a local church. Um, and seemingly this individual was uh, writing on behalf of some of the other local churches. And they wanted to know by what authority I was doing what we were doing and setting up a fellowship. That we hadn't asked their permission um, and they thought that maybe we should meet together to discuss what the intentions were of Calvary Chapel Paul, as it was at the time. I know that when Ron Matson started this fellowship, um, he was challenged again as to what authority he was setting up a Bible study. Who had given him permission to do that? I also remember back at Deal, when Deal Christian Fellowship began, some 22 years ago or around that, um, one of the uh, local uh, Anglican ministers happened to come past the house one day and Dad was out in the garden. And obviously he'd heard that this fellowship was now meeting. Uh, and this Anglican minister just came up and challenged Dad as to what we were doing and why this fellowship had begun. He said, are you aware, he said, that I am the official soul saver for the parish? <laughs> Uh, that, that comes from Second Opinions, chapter two. Uh, I just, yeah, but it's it's always the way, isn't it? That people would try and challenge the authority. Well, the authority we have comes from God Himself. Ordination comes from God. I wasn't ordained by somebody wearing a, a dress and a big pointy hat. And, and even if I had been, what would it really mean? What right does man have to ordain another man? Ordination comes from God. And guess what? We're all ordained. We are ordained ministers for God because he's appointed us, he's ordained us that we should bear fruit for him. Uh, Again, the um, scribes here just bringing this kind of challenge, but Jesus jumping straight in to protect his sheep here. And again, it's often the case, isn't it, that these individuals will try to lift themselves up by putting other people down. They have to try and maintain their own position. Well, the scribes clearly don't answer. But verse 17, we're told, but one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And whithersoever he taketh him, he teareth him. And he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spoke to thy disciples that they should cast him out. And they could not. So you notice in this verse a couple of things. In verse 18, it says, whithersoever he taketh him. Straight away he recognizes that there's an entity here, there's a power here. He gives him this, this appellation of he. Whether he takes him, he tears him. And this is what the devil will do with people if he can. And he foameth and gnashes with his teeth and pineth away. And I spoke to thy disciples. But of course the disciples are not able to deal with it. They don't know what to do seemingly with this situation. Once again, anybody that is not in Christ leaves themselves open to this kind of 
problem, this kind of attack. But 1 John 4, 4 tells us that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. So a brief conversation with John before we started. And actually, you know, as Christians, we don't need to worry about being possessed. Sometimes Christians have had over the years ideas that, that Christians can be possessed and so on. That, that's not true because we are indwelt, as we said already, by the presence of God himself. You know, all the fallen angels, demons, they are created. They're not the creator. And they have no power compared to God. And we don't need to fear. We don't need to be afraid. We, we've sang that song already and, and, and Di shared with us. You know, we don't need to be concerned because the one who is on our side is the God of angel armies. Now, it doesn't mean that Christians can't be oppressed. And I think most conservative commentators would, would accept that at times Christians can be oppressed by the forces of darkness. It's what Paul really tells us in Ephesians 6, that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and so on. You know, And there are malevolent spiritual forces at work in this world, and they would love to bring down Christians. They would love to bring down Christian marriages. They would love to bring down churches. But there's a limit to what they could do. Because we're also told very clearly, in fact we're going to look at some, let's just look at the scriptures. Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. We need to be aware of this. They are the rulers of the darkness of this world against the spiritual wickedness in the high places again understand that Adam lost the dominion of the earth to Satan Jesus is going to claim it back Jesus is that kinsman redeemer two weeks ago you had that study in the book of Ruth Jesus is that kinsman redeemer just as Boaz was coming and purchasing back the land but in order to purchase the land, Boaz had to also take the bride. And Jesus was doing just that. He's taking a bride to himself, this Gentile bride, just as we see this beautiful picture in Ruth. And Jesus will claim back this earth from Satan. And Satan can't stand against him. Mark 9.9 nine. We're going to come back and keep on this theme. But he answered him and said, Jesus now speaking, O faithless generation. So speaking to this man, but speaking to this audience, this group of people, including the disciples. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? And then he says, bring him unto me. The question really is, do we believe this? And this is that 1 John 4, 4, that he that is in us is greater. See, disciples not sure seemingly what to do here. But he that is in us is greater. Not because of us, but because of him, because of the name of Jesus. And do we believe what James 4, 7 tells us, that if we resist the devil, he must flee? There's that lovely quaint story of Martin Luther. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it's often repeated, that one night he woke up and looked at it. There at the end of his bed was the devil, and he just said, oh, you, and rolled over and went back to sleep again. Totally disinterested. Yeah, if God is for us, who could be against us? 
That's what Paul tells us in Romans. Now, that doesn't mean we deal with the, the principalities and powers and the forces of darkness flippantly. It doesn't mean we, we treat them with, um, disdain because we're warned about that in the book of Jude. You know, this is a very serious issue. But at the same time, we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be afraid. You know, there is nothing that Satan can do to you if you are a blood-bought child of the living God. Well, Jesus then deals with this situation. We read verse 20 that they brought him, this individual, unto Jesus. And when he saw him, straight away the spirit tear him. See, confronted by the disciples, the spirit wasn't bothered. But as soon as the spirit is confronted by Jesus, even before Jesus has said anything, the spirit is hugely uncomfortable. And we told him the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, so Jesus now turns and addresses this young man's father and says, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. Isn't it so sad that Satan can have a grip on someone for so long? But you know, there's people out there in the world that don't necessarily manifest this kind of behavior. Satan's had a grip on them since they were children. Because of maybe things that they experienced or things they went through or things they got involved in that they shouldn't have done. Curiosity can be so dangerous. It kills far more than just cats. The father carries on and says, and oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. And then he pleads and says to Jesus, but if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And let me just clarify this, because this isn't belief in belief. It's not faith in faith. You know, there's a whole segment of the church that, you know, some years ago went on down this road of talking about faith and how important it is to have faith. But they never really qualified it. We have to have faith in Jesus. Faith in faith is, doesn't mean anything. You can't just hope that things will be okay and then call it faith. No, it's believing in Jesus, the person of Jesus, what he can do, who he is. Oh, it really stems back to that question, who do you say I am? Jesus said unto him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And straight away the father of the child cried out and said with tears. It's a really emotional thing. Again, it's so easy to, to skip over these things and then miss intensity. He says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Lord, I, I believe, I believe that you can do something, but... Whatever I'm lacking, help me with. What a great prayer. Because we don't always know the things that we need. But you believe enough to know that Jesus is the answer. What a great prayer of faith. Before we go on, I just want to share with you uh, something that I heard at Creation Fest this year. One of the speakers by the name of Carl Beach who I'd not heard of before, but um, he runs, uh, he's the pastor of a church up in um, um, Chesterfield, I believe it is. Um, really kind of comical character. He grew up in uh, in Essex, in Dagenham area. Um, and uh, he ended up 
uh, working in a bank. In fact, he, he kind of, he was giving his testimony, he said that he started, he met a girl and this girl went to church and uh, he spoke to this girl and said, you know, in his own words, he said, you know, I think I'll be pretty good for you. And uh, she said, well, I'm sorry, but I only go out with Christians. And he said, oh, I'm a Christian. And she said, no, I only go out with, with real Christians, born again. He said, well, I'm one of them. And he said, he didn't have a clue what he was saying, but he was just you know, keen to date this girl. Well, eventually, because of this girl, he started going to church, and eventually he got saved. Um, <laughs> and he's quite comical because he said, the moment he got saved, he said that the elders in the church, they embraced him. He said, and this girl came up and gave me a kiss. He said, I should have done it months before. But <laughs> anyway, he went on to share that, as he was going through his, his early life as a Christian, he, he had a job in a bank. And one day a medium came in. And he just was speaking to this individual. And he said, oh, what do you do? And she said, well, I'm a medium. And he goes, oh, that's interesting. He said, I'm a Christian. And he said, there's one of those kind of frosty silences that go on far longer than you think they should. Uh, and eventually, he, said, he thought he plucked up the courage. And he said, could you do me a favor? And so she said, okay. He said, can you go and ask your, he said, have you got a spirit guide? And she said, well, yeah, I've got three. And he said, he thought that was kind of a bit greedy. But, you know, she said, well, could you go and ask them? She said, who's in charge on the other side? He said, he thought it was you know, worth a go. So anyway, we had an appointment the following week, but she didn't come to the appointment. Well, it was some weeks after that they happened to see her uh, out about. So he went up to her and just said, oh, you, you didn't come back. Uh, and he said, did you manage to get an answer to the question? She said, well, actually, she said, I, I was told two things. And he said, well, what were they? And she said, well, the first thing I was told was to the question, who's in charge? It's the Christ. This is what her spirit guides told her. And the second thing they said to her is, don't go and speak to that Christian again or we're not going to help you. And her whole livelihood was based upon what she did. So that's why she hadn't been back to see him. And I just thought that's interesting. And he was sharing this because he was talking a little bit about spiritual warfare. You know, the, the principalities, the powers that we read about in Ephesians, they know that Jesus is in charge. There is no doubt that the name of Jesus is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, getting back on track here. So this father pleads says, Lord, I believe, but if I'm lacking anything, help me. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit. And now, interestingly, Jesus is doing this because the crowd is starting to amass and people are coming around. And you'll see that Jesus is still in this mode of not wanting to draw too much attention to himself. It almost seems counterintuitive. We'll, we'll talk about this more as we, we carry on over the coming weeks. So as the crowd are, are starting to arrive, Jesus immediately then rebukes this foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried out and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead insomuch that many said he is dead. So obviously there's some sort of, you know, wrestling and moving around this, this individual and then suddenly everything stops. And people think he's died. 
notice here that there is no holy water, there's no crucifixes, none of those things, just Jesus. That's all you need. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he was coming into the house, his disciples asked him privately, we'll come to this in just a second, just, just see for a moment here, this life that had been in the grip of Satan since a child, suddenly transformed by Jesus. That's salvation. We, we've all gone through that kind of experience if we are saved. You know, for some of us it was maybe a, a longer process, but effectively this is everybody's story. That we were in the grip and power of Satan, and then Jesus came and took us by the hand, and we lifted up. Life changes that quickly. You know, there are so many people out there in this community around us that are still in the grip and the power of Satan. And the only thing that will change their lives is Jesus. We then read on in verse 28. When he was coming into the house, his disciples asked him privately, he says, why could not we cast him out? And it's interesting the response that Jesus gives, because he said unto them, notice that the question earlier, the statement earlier was about unbelief and, you know. But he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now, we've mentioned this a number of times before, but this wasn't just a situation where Jesus walked into this scenario, there's a problem, so now he's gone away to fast for a bit. Now, everything happens here and then. Jesus had been fasting. He'd already been in that place of setting himself apart for God. You see, fasting is all about that. Fasting, as we've said many, many times, is not a hunger strike. It's not you going without food so that God will listen to you. Fasting is simply about Cutting out everything else to focus on God. And by doing so, God is so much part of your heart and your mind and your thoughts in, in, in dwelling you through His Spirit that a situation like this arises and you immediately know what to do because there's not the, the things of the flesh, the things of this world clouding your mind and your judgment. You see, problems like this don't get resolved by a mediocre Christian life. Let's put it that way. You can't just fumble through your Christian life, coming to church on Sunday, praying in emergencies, reading the Bible at Bible studies, or occasionally if there's nothing on TV. That doesn't work. You're not going to solve these kind of problems and the challenges that we face by living that kind of life. But if we live the kind of life where we are devoted to the Lord, where he really is first in our life, where our greatest joy is to get home and not turn the telly on, but to open the word of God, where at the end of the day, we want to close out the day in prayer. And when we wake up in the morning, we wake and we want to talk to our Lord again. Because we know we can't step a foot even out of our beds without his grace and without his help. Because you probably won't even make it from your bedroom to your bathroom without some sort of temptation, without some sort of worldly thought, without some sort of stress, pressure, agenda about the day entering your mind that will cloud your judgment. You know, But if we are living that kind of life where we are committed to him, 
a life of prayer and fasting. And it doesn't have to be going without food. It's a good thing if you're able to do it. It, it, it is simply a life of cutting off everything else and focusing upon him. Well, you can be used of the Lord in incredible ways. And none of us know what's going to happen through the, the day ahead. And how many opportunities do we miss? It was years ago, I went to visit a friend who was at uh, Birmingham Bible Institute. I'm not sure what they're like now. At the time, they're one of the few good Bible colleges in this country. They taught the word and they understood God's plan for Israel and many other things. And um, my friend was there and I went to stay with him for a weekend and we just walked out. We were, going, we were just walking through the streets in Birmingham at one point. Uh, and uh, I just shared this because it's pertinent to this situation, but I had been fasting in the week before that. And as we're walking through the streets, it's almost like I was wearing different glasses. Because I was looking and I could just see people. There was one individual that was sitting on the floor and I walked past him. And, and I, I, I still regret not having the courage to, to act. But I really felt an urge just to go and pray for that individual there and then. I, I don't know what difference it would have made, but... You know, how many times have we heard stories or accounts of people who have just acted in faith and gone and done what they felt the Lord to do? I want to share another story of the Carl Beach shed at Creation Fest. And by the way, if you want to watch the uh, the whole teaching to get the context of everything, uh, it is online. If you go to the Creation Fest website, um, you can look at all the past teachings and the ones from this year are there. And the teaching this year was very good. Carl was... Um, sharing a story. Um, he was out ministering. He said he was out knocking on doors. He said he hates knocking on doors, but he really felt it was the right thing to do at that time. And this, I can't remember the house number. I thought so I'm just going to make a number up. This, this particular street they're in, and he really, he, he went to this, this house, and number 57 it was, I think, and knocked on the door, and this lady opened the door, and he was met with a barrage of abuse, and uh, paraphrasing was basically uh, I don't really want to talk to you right now please would you leave um, it was not as courteous as that so he walked down the path and thought okay off he went and he's a little way down the road and he just felt the Holy Spirit say to, say to him I want you to go and knock on that door again number 57 and he's like oh Lord now no really please but he really felt that that was what the Lord said so he went back and knocked on the door again and once again, the lady opened the door and a whole barrage of profanities and abuse, again, politely asking him to leave. Didn't want to talk to him right now. And so he went down the path and thought, well, okay, oh Lord, I, I did what I thought you wanted me to do. Anyway, a few weeks went by, he came back down the same road. And he really felt the Lord say, I want you to go and knock on number 57 again. He's like, oh Lord, please. But obediently, he did. He knocked on the door. And he was bracing himself for what was about to happen. And the door opened. And the lady said, oh, hi, it's you. Oh, come in. So he was a little bit, okay. So he went in. He said, would you like a cup of tea? 
And he said, oh, uh, yes, please. And he said, as, as I walked into the lounge, there was her son there, who apparently was sitting there smoking cannabis and, and so on. He said, it was a kind of unpleasant environment. But And uh, he said, oh, yes, please. And he said, two sugars. And she said, oh, you shouldn't take sugars. They're bad for you. And he said... <laughs> But she made him a cup of tea and they sat down and they started chatting. And uh, she said, oh, I want to just tell you something. She said, you know, a couple of weeks ago you came and knocked on my door. She said, and I told you to go. And he said, yeah, I remember. And she said, I prayed a prayer. She said, I don't think I've ever prayed a prayer before. She said, but I prayed a prayer. And I said, God, if you're really real. She said, because, sorry, the context, she was about, just about to commit suicide. And that first knock on the door had stopped her as she was about to take her own life. And so she paused after she'd gone and shut the door and she said, God, if you are really real, she said, make that young man come back again. And of course, Carl went back, knocked on the door, and again, he was sent away with a flea in his ear, but she realized that there must be a God. Well, Carl then chatted to her and prayed with her and she gave her heart to the Lord and then her family and so on. That's the difference. That's what Jesus is saying in this verse. It's not just about dealing with demonic spirits that manifest themselves in such a way that people have fits or whatever we want to describe this as. It's being so spiritually prepared that the Lord can use you wherever you are, however strange and random it may seem, the things the Lord may ask you to do, just to go and speak to somebody or to to say something or to pray for somebody at a certain time. I'm sure you've all had experiences where you felt called to pray at a particular moment and later you found at that particular moment there was something that was happening and you realized how important your prayer was. And that the Lord used you. What a privilege. No, no, we, we can't carry on just living nominal, menial Christian lives. You know, we've got to be living lives of prayer and fasting so that we're ready for whatever comes along. The disciples couldn't deal with this because they weren't ready. They weren't thinking spiritually. They weren't close enough to the Lord. Jesus didn't deal with this because he was the Son of Man, the Son of God. He dealt with it because he was simply a man being obedient to God at this point. Yes, of course, there's power in the name of Jesus. But he knew what to do because of his relationship with his Father. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee. And he would not that any man should know it. So again, Jesus playing it all down. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, Son of man is delivered into the hands of, the, of men, and they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Again, Jesus speaking this to them. And, you know, just to lay some foundation for what we're going to look at over the coming weeks, Jesus said that he was going to rise the third day. All right, before the third day comes the second day. Have you got a problem with that? I think we're okay, aren't we? Before the second day, anybody want to have a guess? The first day, all right? It's quite simple, really. And then before that, we have effectively day zero, and then we can plot the rest of the, the days in if you want it numerically. Now, we know that the third day, the day that Jesus rose, was the day of the resurrection. And that means the crucifixion had to be on, as it were, day zero, 
It was the first day of the week that the resurrection occurred, which was a Sunday. And so we can put all these things in, and very clearly, without any problem whatsoever, we know the crucifixion occurred on the Thursday. Now we're going to go through a lot of more detail about these things and why it's important and how it fits this incredible model that God has laid down some sixteen or forty to sixteen hundred years beforehand. We'll look at that as we go forward. But Jesus again just highlighting to the disciples what is going to happen when they get there. We're told, but they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. And he came to Capernaum and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves, by the way? But they held their peace. Uh, for by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. We'll leave it there this week and we'll pick it up from there and we'll look at that because this is a big issue and certainly in churches it's something that we need to be very clear on, very sure on about how we treat each other, how we see ourselves and our position uh, within the body of Christ. So we'll look at that in detail next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and powerful and we thank you, Father, that you love us enough to make us at times feel uncomfortable, to challenge us and to, Lord, just lay upon us the necessity of living a life that is devoted to you. Lord, we live in a world that is so bound up by the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the devil. Oh, and Lord, we want to see the devil's control and a hold broken over the lives of those that we know our own loved ones, Lord, the people in this community around us. Father, we recognize that you work through your people. As a father, as Isaiah said, we want to say, Lord, here we are. Send us. Lord, we don't have all the answers. And Lord, where we need, Lord, we pray that you would equip us, you would teach us, you would instruct us. Help, Lord, our unbelief. But, Lord, we do believe. We believe that the name of Jesus is the name above every name. It's the name and the only name by which men can be saved. And so, Lord, we just commit to you these things. Lord, impress them upon our hearts and on Jesus. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.